Welcome to the Ship Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of this week's precious metals news. It's Friday, July 2nd. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. Well, so far, this has been one of those mornings where I feel like the entire universe is conspiring against me. In the first place, I'm dealing with the ravages of a summer cold, and you might hear that in my voice. And then my internet has been off and on all morning, so that makes show prep a challenge. But anyway, we're going to soldier on because we've got a nice holiday weekend coming up. So we're going to get this done, and it's going to be awesome. Now, as far as the gold market goes, it's really been a pretty quiet week. Not a lot of news or, or data uh, gold was up a bit early this morning. We've been trading between about 1750 and 1800 through the week. Uh, the big news of the day will be the jobs report that's going to come out. The ADP private pi- uh, payroll numbers were pretty solid. Uh, I think it was about 695,000 jobs added. And weekly jobless claims last week fell back below 400,000. So I'm guessing this will probably be a pretty decent uh, employment report and it'll probably fuel the, this is a great recovery narrative, which I'm still not going to buy into. Uh, A strong dollar is putting a lot of downward pressure on gold. The dollar index hit a three-month high on Thursday. You know, we live in a strange world where printing fiat currency uh, somehow makes it stronger. Overall, June was a really tough month for gold. We saw the biggest monthly drop in price since 2016. Uh, I still call this a buying opportunity. I was amused at how the Financial Times put it. It said gold dropped, quote, after the Federal Reserve surprised investors with its willingness to control inflationary pressures with an eventual rise in interest rates, denting the appeal of holding the metal. As if nobody ever imagined that the Fed might raise rates someday. And it really is someday, right? This idea that a 50 basis point interest rate hike, maybe in two years or so, is suddenly this hawkish Fed Fed position is just kind of silly. Now, I'll tell you who is being hawkish, the Russians. They're dealing with the same kind of price increases that we are here in the United States, but transitory does not seem to be in the Russian central banker vocabulary. Consumer price inflation was up 6% in May, and the Russian central bank is aggressively trying to get ahead of it. It's not just talking about talking about raising interest rates maybe someday. It actually hiked rates all the way back in March. Then it hiked again by another 50 basis points in April, setting the rate at 5%. Can you imagine 5% interest rates in the U.S.? But the Russian bank wasn't finished. It hiked again in June to 5.5%. And some people think a big, quote, shock and awe hike could be next. The Russian central bank president said they would consider up to a 1% hike when they meet again in late July. Now, comments from the central bank governor are pretty interesting. She's kind of like the anti-Powell. She said, we see that inflation remains elevated and that inflation expectations are quite high. She went on to explain that the initial factors in this surge of inflation were due to a weakening ruble last year and commodity and food price increases, so these effects from the pandemic. She said they alone might not require monetary policy intervention, but now inflation expectations remain elevated, which creates what she called second-round effects. 
Quote, that's why we see that inflation acceleration is not transitory, as in many other countries, but more persistent. That's why we think we should act with rate hikes. So there you go. You can put that in the category of things that make you go, hmm. So as I was planning the show today, I really wasn't very enthused about it. Like I said, I don't really feel very good. And there's not a lot going on this week. There wasn't a lot of economic data. I'm kind of tired of talking about what the Fed might do someday. I think I pretty much laid out that position as clearly as I can. So instead of rehashing Fed talk again, I thought I would do a little bit of history. Now, as a lot of you probably know, I'm the National Communications Director at the Tenth Amendment Center, and I recently finished up an ebook titled The Constitution versus the Federal Reserve. Did you know that if we actually followed the Constitution as ratified, the Federal Reserve wouldn't even exist? True story. Government central banking is not authorized by the Constitution. Now, we can trace the origins of the modern central bank back to the creation of the first bank of the United States. And this was just a couple of years after the Constitution was ratified. Now, even then, it was built on dubious constitutional justifications, but it wasn't created without a fight. The arguments advanced by the bank's opponents provide a good deal of insight into the original understanding of the Constitution and the American system as it was originally conceived. This is an important subject to explore because, of course, central banking has both constitutional and policy ramifications. I talk about the policy ramifications all the time on this podcast, but what about the constitutional ramifications? So, Congress chartered the First Bank of the United States in February 1791. A national bank was the brainchild of Alexander Hamilton, and his rationale really wasn't much different from those who later came up with the Federal Reserve. Hamilton thought a central bank was necessary to stabilize and improve the fledgling nation's credit and to better manage the financial business of the U.S. government. He also knew that a vision of a powerful national government was impossible without a central bank to backstop government borrowing. So it always comes back to this big government thing. You need central banking to have a big, powerful government. And of course, Hamilton was always a proponent of big, powerful government. But what about the Constitution? How did Hamilton's bank fit into the constitutional framework that was ratified just a couple of years earlier? Well, simply put, it didn't. In order to justify his bank, Hamilton performed what I would argue is one of the greatest political flip-flops in American history. During the ratification debates, Hamilton promised that the federal government would remain limited to its explicitly delegated powers. But when it came time to charter his bank, Hamilton suddenly discovered implied powers buried in the text of the Constitution. Now, it's important to understand that the ratification debates really reveal the true meaning of the Constitution. That's where the Constitution was sold to the public. It's where uh, the supporters of the Constitution told us what all of these clauses were supposed to mean. Now, if we go back to the Philadelphia Convention, many of the framers actually favored a very strong centralized national government. In fact, James Madison actually proposed a federal veto on all state laws. But as the convention wore on, delegates voted down proposals to create this centralized national government one by one. In fact, Hamilton got so mad he actually left for a while. 
And uh, this includes Madison's federal veto. The Constitution that came out of the convention created a general government with a few defined enumerated powers. Opponents of the Constitution warned that the proposed federal government would actually quickly grow in power and scope, but supporters of the Constitution, including Hamilton, swore that this wouldn't happen. They went to the ratification debates and they sold the Constitution to what was really a pretty skeptical public by promising that the new federal government would not be able to go beyond the specific powers laid out in the document. For instance, in Federalist Number 45, James Madison gave what I think is the most succinct and clear description of what the American system was supposed to look like, what people thought they were getting from the Constitution. He said, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. And he said, the powers that would remain with the states and the people were numerous and indefinite. And he went on and he explained that the powers given to the federal government would primarily deal with foreign policy, foreign trade, and all of the things that dealt with the rights and the liberties and the prosperity of the American people would remain with the state and local governments. It was a decentralized system with most of the power local, less power at the top. And this type of argument was repeated over and over again as the Constitution was being debated and ratified. Even Hamilton took up this limited federal power banner, writing in Federalist Number 32, quote, The state governments would clearly retain all rights of sovereignty, which they before had, and which were not, by the act, exclusively delegated to the United States. The American system started to go off the rails right away when politicians, uh, being politicians, started expanding their own power. So simply put, a lot of them promised limited government when they were trying to get the Constitution approved, and then they flip-flopped to big government when they wanted to, quote, get stuff done. Hamilton wanted a bank, and so he was the biggest flip-flopper of all. He went from this idea of exclusively delegated powers to implied powers. Now, you'll be shocked to hear I'm not a fan of that bastard. You know, Hamilton literally was a bastard, right? Anyway, his bank plan sparked really intense debate, and it wasn't merely an argument about the need for a bank or the functions that it would perform, although that debate was also had. The opposition to the National Bank, which was led by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, was far more fundamental and based on constitutional grounds. I don't think I go too far when I call the bank uh, debate the first American constitutional crisis. Basically, supporters of the bank abused and expanded various constitutional clauses to justify the bank, particularly the necessary and proper clause. In effect, Hamilton and his cohorts conjured up an almost unlimited reservoir of power that the federal government could dip into in order to to basically take whatever actions it deemed appropriate. Again, this was a 180-degree reversal from the position uh, Hamilton took during the ratification debates when he insisted that the new general government would only have the authority to exercise its expressly enumerated powers. Now, I go into the specific arguments in depth in my ebook. Uh, right now, that's available to Tenth Amendment Center members. I'll put links in the show notes page if you're interested in checking out the Tenth Amendment Center, maybe joining. 
Uh, and the book will be available to the public in the future. There's also a shorter summary of Jefferson's arguments against the bank that I published over at shiftgold.com slash news uh, a little while back. I'll put that on the show notes page. And if this stuff really is interesting to you, I've written a book titled Constitution Owner's Manual, The Real Constitution the Politicians Don't Want You to Know About, that looks at the meaning of various constitutional clauses and um, the arguments during the ratification through the eyes of the the supporters during the ratification debates. If you are interested in such things, you can check that out at constitutionownersmanual.com. There's buying options there, and I'll link to that in the show notes page as well. Anyway, in a nutshell, the arguments against the bank fit more closely with the vision laid out by supporters of the Constitution during the ratification debates, but ultimately, Alexander Hamilton won the day. The chartering of the First Bank of the United States not only set the precedent for government-controlled central banking that ultimately gave us the Federal Reserve today, it also sent the U.S. down the path to ever-growing central power. Once you take a step beyond constitutional limits, you are on a very dangerous path that always leads to big government and, quite frankly, government oppression. As Jefferson put it, to take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specially drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power no longer susceptible to any definition. That's where we are today. Congress does whatever it wants. The U.S. government does anything it pleases. There are virtually no limits. And you can trace all of this, you know, things like Obamacare. You can trace it straight back to Hamilton's argument for the bank. And of course, the central bank has caused all kinds of problems as regular listeners to this podcast know. The central bank shouldn't even exist if you followed the Constitution, but of course it does. We can't change that. But we can take steps to protect our wealth from its pernicious effects. And to do that, I highly recommend talking to a ship gold precious metal specialist. You can call them at 1-888-GOLD-160. Shoot them an email at info at shipgold.com. They will look at your personal situation, your investment strategy, your goals, and help you see how precious metals might fit into your portfolio. So do that today. So that is a gold wrap for this week. You can get more details on these stories and more, of course, and keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com slash news. You can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap over at iTunes on the Shiftgold YouTube channel on Stitcher. Links to all of this stuff you will find on our show notes page. I appreciate you listening to the show. I hope you have a great Independence Day weekend. Think Liberty. Liberty.